Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Today we will be studying uh, the lesson material for June 3rd through 9th, which covers the 13th through the 17th chapters of John. And the title is Continue Ye in My Love. And here we have a beautiful discourse that the Savior gives to us, uh, gives to his disciples, and it's recorded uh, for us so that we can benefit from it. And here this week will be only in uh, the Gospel of John. The past few weeks we've been focused on what are known as the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is a Greek word that means singular view. Optic, we're similar, uh, we're familiar with. It means eyes or view. And uh, synoptic means singular view. And so the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they're all similar in their accounts. And there's uh, historians guess is the reasons for that. The most common assumption is that uh, there was a singular source that they call Q, and then also the Gospel of Mark. And those two together form the basis for Matthew and Luke on which they wrote their Gospels. Uh, but the Gospel of John is unique in that it doesn't follow the others. Uh, the material that we have in the Gospel of John is largely not found and the other three Gospels. So you have the three synoptic Gospels on the one hand that are very similar, and then you have John's account. And of course, John, interestingly, was the only of the three, sorry, the only of the four that was actually an apostle. He was the only one that was there for these things. Everyone else was, in some way or other, getting their account secondhand. But John was there for all this. And so because of that, we have a lot of unique material in John, including the lessons that we'll be discussing today. We'll be discussing teachings that the Savior gave to his apostles uh, in the context, in the room of the Last Supper. <clears throat> Interestingly, John's account doesn't really mention anything about the Supper. And you'll see in chapter 13, it begins, uh, verse 1 talks about how he enjoyed the feast of the Passover with them. And then in verse 2, right away, the supper being ended. The supper's over. And now the Savior gets down uh, to some important business, uh, to, providing an essential ordinance, as well as uh, some beautiful teachings that, that only John records. And that's what we'll be focused on today. And we'll see that these teachings uh, not only are, are meaningful, but they are very deep and very profound. And they provide some important and essential insights to understanding the atonement of Jesus Christ and what that actually is and what it means and, and in some ways how it even works. So this is uh, an example, this is a kind of a, a summary of what we'll be studying today. So let's uh, go ahead and get started. <clears throat> so we see that after the, uh, after the apostles and Christ have finished eating this supper, which again John describes as the, the Passover feast, he performs something that they were not expecting. Um, he begins to wash their feet. And in verse 7, 
He says, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. What in fact he was doing was something that was incredibly significant, and he was providing an essential ordinance uh, to his apostles that they would benefit from later. Peter, of course, is taken aback by what the Savior is doing. Um, this was a shock to them. This washing of the feet was something that servants had done. And you can imagine, in the, especially at the time of the Passover, when many, many more people than normally inhabit Jerusalem were coming to visit, to partake, to participate in the Passover festivities. And so the streets outside were not just littered with with food or other stuffs that you might find on a street. Uh, but as people were bringing their animals, uh, you, you had uh, what the animals were leaving behind, if you will. The streets were no doubt incredibly dirty at this point. And everyone was wearing, they didn't have the nice shoes that you and I have today, but instead they were essentially either barefoot or wearing not much more than a piece of leather strapped to their foot. So washing their feet was more than just taking the dust off here. This was pretty gross stuff. And the Savior, the God of the universe, was here washing all of the garbage off of their feet. Taking these, these feet that are essential for walking, essential for functioning, essential for movement and progression, and cleansing them, making them clean. Very profound and very meaningful ordinance that he's performing. Peter is surprised that he is doing this. And in verse 8 he says, Thou shalt never wash my feet. But Jesus answers him and he says, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part of me. So again, this is a sacred ordinance. And it was restored to the prophet Joseph Smith when he established uh, the school of the prophets in 1832. <clears throat> and it was the understanding by the early saints that this ordinance could only be performed in a sacred place that was part of the motivating factor for them to build the temple and the temples in both uh, uh, Kirtland and in Nauvoo as well. And in fact, as they were dedicating the, uh, the Kirtland temple and they were singing uh, the song that we have today as the spirit of God, like a fire is burning, uh, that song actually has six verses, and if you're interested, I'd encourage you to, uh, to look uh, at all of them. Um, we, only, we only have four that we sing normally now. But one of the verses that was included and sung at the time of the Kurt dedication of the Kirtland Temple went something like this. We'll wash and be washed, and with oil be anointed, with all not omitting the washing of feet. For he that receiveth his penny appointed must surely be clean at the harvest of wheat. So we have what here is the original fourth verse of the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. <clears throat> and it specifically mentions the washings and the anointings that are to be performed in the temple, specifically, minting, uh, specifically mentioning the washing of feet and talking about how this is an essential ordinance for preparing a people, both as a collective and as individuals, for returning to God's presence and being with him. And this is what the Savior is doing to his apostles now. Now in our day, <clears throat> the ordinance is somewhat evolved and we see it manifest in two separate ways. 
The first is that the first part of the or of the endowment ordinance that we receive when we go to the temple is called the the initiatory, and it includes washings and anointings. And though we don't specifically uh, wash feet during that process, uh, certainly the washings and anointings that we receive as part of the endowment, as the beginning part of the endowment, can be tied back uh, both to the ordinances that were performed in the temples that the Jews had established and also what the Savior is doing here. But it's also my understanding that the, uh, the washing of the feet is performed at other times in the temple uh, as appropriate, um, but, uh, but is not appropriate, I would, I would say, to, to go into details here because it is largely involves speculation. But suffice it to say that this is uh, more than just a kind act of service that the Savior is performing. It's more than him just doing something nice and washing the feet of his apostles. Uh, his Clearly, in verse 8, when he says, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part of me. That's more than him just being kind and doing a nice act of service. That's him letting them know, this is important. You need this. And so he performs it for them. After he washes their feet, <clears throat> he gets the atonement process going. And when I say the atonement process, I'm talking about the process of him going to the garden, bleeding from every pore, being tried and being executed and hung on the cross and eventually uh, giving up his spirit and returning to the Father and then taking it back with the resurrection. That whole process that we generically refer to somewhat as the atonement, he begins now. And that he calls out Judas. And interestingly, he does so in a way, and it says here that the other apostles didn't quite understand what he was talking about. But he basically tells Judas, I know what you are about to do. Go do it. Go get it started. And he gets that ball rolling. As soon as Judas leaves, as soon as Judas goes to the religious leaders and begins that process, he here sets, this wheel, sets the wheel in motion that does not stop until he is resurrected and the atonement has been completed. <clears throat> Once Judas leaves, he begins instructing his apostles. He begins by telling them in verse 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. So he tells them, I'm about to leave you. I am going away. And where I'm going, you cannot come with me. Interesting, can keep that a note, because in the next chapter... Uh, he actually tells them the, the opposite as he begins to elaborate. But he begins by telling them, I am leaving. You're not going to have me for much further. And this must have come as a complete and total shock to them. They were so new in their faith, but yet they had seen so much. And throughout that entire process, Christ had been with them. He had taught them so much, and they had seen so many miracles. And they'd even become famous because of him. Clearly, it seemed like leaving their fisher nets, fishermen's nets and all of their other previous occupations behind and choosing to follow this, this marvelous Savior 
who's doing so much good, so many miracles, and whose fame had spread all throughout the land. Surely that seemed like a good idea. But it's about to change in enormous ways that they perhaps had inclinations of. Christ was trying to teach them. But certainly he had shown such great power that it hadn't registered in their minds that he, in any way, could be taken from them. But here he is telling them, I'm about to leave you. <clears throat> and with this, he begins one of the greatest discourses that we have in all of recorded scripture. And that's what we'll be going through today. And as we go through it, I think it's important that we look at the relationships that Christ is mentioning here. And as we do so, and we'll spell these out as much as we can in our short time together. But as we look at these relationships, it teaches us about our relationship with each other, about our relationship with Christ, our relationship with the Holy Ghost, and our relationship with the Father, and how all of these things work together to make us all become one through the process of atonement. Important to always remember that atonement itself, we often think of atonement in this, as this somewhat kind of vague notion, kind of as I described, described earlier about Christ going into the garden and, and bleeding for our sins and dying on the cross and be resurrected. Those, that's just the culmination of the atonement, if you will. <clears throat> but the actual atonement itself means the reconciliation, taking two things that, have been, that are separated and bringing them together at one, the at one meant. And so as we read these verses, we look for how Christ teaches us about how he and the Father are one, how we are commanded to be one, how we become one with Christ. And as all of these separate and unique ones come together, we have the atonement, the at one meant. <clears throat> And he starts in verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Of course, it's hard to read these verses without thinking of the, of the beautiful song that we sing. <clears throat> but it's interesting to note that he calls this a new commandment. Did he previously not tell his disciples the importance of, of loving each other? I don't think that's the case, and certainly they already had, were developing a great affection for each other. But it's interesting that he calls this a new commandment. And it's a commandment that we love one another. And we'll see in each place as he gives us this commandment throughout these verses we'll be studying today, he always specifies this is a commandment. This is something that you have to do. You have to love one another. And we'll learn why this is important. But clearly as we read these verses, and we do so in the context of Christ knowing that he will soon be leaving his little flock. You can almost see him as this great patriarch or matriarch, knowing that his time on earth is almost over and pleading with his children, please love one another, <clears throat> be kind to each other, stay together. Don't let me leaving you mean you leave each other, but you are commanded to stay together so that we can, so that you can accomplish everything that I expect you to. Okay, so after this commandment, 
uh, we go to uh, chapter 14. He starts by encouraging, encouraging them. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. <clears throat> so he tells us, believe in me. <clears throat> Trust me. I am doing something great for you. And what is it I'm doing? I'm going back to my father's house where I will prepare a room for you. We have the word mansion here. Mansion, uh, when the King James Version was initially translated, <clears throat> did not mean a large, enormous house uh, as we think of mansion today. But it actually meant, <clears throat> a, it was more along the lines of a room within a hotel, a temporary west, a resting place or a way station. <clears throat> so the idea is that the father, he is the owner of this giant mansion. And when within this mansion, there are many rooms. And Christ is going to prepare a room for us. And then in verse 3, he promises that I'm not going to prepare it and then expect you to just come and hope that you happen upon it. I will come back and I will lead you there. I'm not completely sure of the significance of the fact that, that it originally meant that they were temporary resting places. Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that we are not just talking about the notion that we are going to return <clears throat> uh, to heaven where we will be resting, uh, strumming our harps and singing praises to God for all eternity. Our understanding of eternity is that of eternal progression, that we are going to be busy, that we are going to be working, we are going to improving ourselves, glorifying ourselves, and in the process glorifying God. And we believe that that's going to take a lot of work. So perhaps when he says mansions, here meaning temporary resting place, he's saying, look, I'm going to prepare a place where you can rest and get ready for the work that we still have ahead of us to accomplish. <clears throat> and then in verse 4, remember he had just told them, where I am going, you cannot come. So interesting, in chapter 14, verse 4, he says, And whither I go, ye know, and the way you know. So I'm going somewhere. You can't come, but you know where I'm going. And you know how to get there. But of course, his apostles aren't quite up to speed yet. In verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. And then in verse 6, his beautiful response. Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So where are we going? We're going back to the Father. And how do we get there? We get there through Jesus Christ. He's the way that we get back to the Father. <clears throat> So again, keep in mind uh, these relationships that he's talking about here. Verse 7, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. 
So Christ says, I'm going to the Father, and I'm the way to the Father. And because you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You, If you know me, you know the Father also. And we'll skip down to verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very work's sake. So Christ, again, I'm going to the Father, I am the way to the Father. Because I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. They share this beautiful oneness <clears throat> that allows Christ to lead us back to the Father. Because of that oneness, because of that relationship that they have. Uh, we'll go down to verse 15 now. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Okay, a famous verse that we've always heard, but certainly this gives, uh, makes the notion that all we have to do to accept Christ, to show our love for Christ, is, is to uh, profess orally that we do so. Keeping the commandments, doing what Christ says we, he wants us to do, is an essential part of showing our love for him. Of being Christians. 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Alright, we're getting another party in here. <clears throat> that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot see, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Okay, so Christ is telling us, and he'll get into more details with this. But he's saying, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to prepare a room for you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. And I'm going to lead you back to the Father. Where you can enjoy that room. Where you can enjoy that rest and that peace. And to help you get there, I am going to send a comforter. I am going to send <clears throat> the Holy Ghost to be with you. Those that do not know me... Do not know the Holy Ghost, and they cannot receive it, it says in verse 17. And why can't they see it? Because they seeth him not, or neither do they know him. <clears throat> Often when Christ talks about, or any of his apostles, especially in the New Testament, talk about seeing, they do so in contradiction uh, to the notion of believing. So you have those things which you can see on the one hand, and then you have those other things uh, that are not seen. <clears throat> okay? Remember, uh, faith is things that are true, but are not seen. Okay? We're talking spiritual things here. The Holy Ghost is a spiritual being, a spiritual element. You cannot see him. And because you cannot see him, many people cannot believe in him because they only believe in things that they see. They only believe in worldly things. They only believe in those things that they can touch and that they can feel and that they have certainty with. Spiritual things, they do not believe in. And the Holy Ghost is certainly a spiritual thing. And because they cannot see him, because they cannot touch him or feel him, they do not believe him. But Christ is telling us here that the Holy Ghost comes and he dwells within us <clears throat> Just as the way that Christ is within the Father, and the Father within Christ, the Holy Ghost will be within us, and the Holy Ghost will lead us back to Christ. So here, interestingly, we have all three members of the Godhead 
We have God the Father. He is our destination. He is where we are going. We have God the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He will take us back to the Father. And then we have God the Testator, the Holy Ghost. He will testify of Christ and lead us to Christ. We see all three members of the Godhead working together for our salvation to lead us back to Jesus Christ. Verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Interesting that uh, if you look at the footnotes for verse 18, it says the translation in Greek for comfort, uh, says I will not leave you comfortless. It says I will not leave you orphans. Interesting concept. So it's not just this idea that Christ is going to leave us uncomfortable without comfort. He's not going to leave us as orphans. Now, what's an orphan? Of course, that's someone who has lost both parents, someone who is destitute, someone who has to strive for himself to make his or or her own way in the world. Christ promises that will not be you. I'm not going to leave you like that. I'm not going to leave you alone to struggle for yourself to make it in this world. Why not? He's sending the Holy Ghost to be a parent to us, to be a guide to us, as we later see, to lead us back to God so that we can get through this world and return to the Father. In verse 20, he ties it all together. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath kept my commandments, he that hath my commandments, and keepeth them. He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. So again, we have this chain. We go to Christ. Christ takes us to God the Father. And how do we get to Christ? The Holy Ghost leads us to Christ. So it's from us to the Holy Ghost, to Jesus Christ, up to God the Father. That is the plan of salvation. That is how we are to return to the Father. The Holy Ghost leads us to Christ, and Christ, through his atonement, makes brings us back to the Father, where we can enjoy the room that he has prepared for us. <clears throat> Verses 26 and 27. But the Comforter, again, this Holy Ghost, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So here again, He teaches us that the Holy Ghost is that comforter that teaches us, that teaches us the words of Christ and leads us to Christ. And then he promises us peace. Not the peace of the world. The peace of the world being a state, as we think of peace, being a state where men are no longer fighting with men, where we don't have fighting amongst ourselves. But the peace that comes from the Holy Ghost, the peace that comes from Jesus Christ, is not only 
interpersonal. It's personal. It's within ourselves. <clears throat> it's the peace that we get, not when we're no longer fighting with another person. It's the peace that we feel when we are no longer fighting with ourselves. When we no longer have to justify our sins. When we no longer have to look for excuses as to why we are going against our conscience. As to why we can't find uh, joy and wickedness. The peace in Christ that comes through the Holy Ghost comes as we live to be worthy of the Holy Ghost. And how do we do that? By keeping the commandments. So as we keep the commandments, we have the peace of Christ because we are at peace with ourselves. Islam has a notion, uh, it's often referred to as the sixth pillar of Islam uh, that some have added. It's the, uh, it's the notion of jihad. And my understanding is that that is an idea that has been interpreted by some to mean a holy war where you go out and um, uh, cause damage to those that do not believe in Allah. But my understanding is there's a much deeper meaning to that. Jihad should not be understood to mean a holy war, but it means a struggle or a striving. It's that effort each day in which we fight against ourselves when we fight against our lesser selves, when we fight against the natural man within each of us that prompts us and tempts us to do things that we within ourselves know that we should not be doing. So I find the, the notion of jihad to be a, a beautiful and a deep one because each Christian can certainly feel that, that struggle to strive to be better, to struggle to keep the, whole, the commandments of Christ the peace that comes as we do so is certainly so invaluable as we strive to keep the commandments and as we receive the witness of the Holy Ghost, even if just for a second, that says, yes, you are doing what's right. You are doing what you're supposed to do. You are on the path back to the Father through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Then we go to chapter 15, where Jesus takes these same relationship and uses an analogy. It's an analogy of a vine. In verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. In verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. So we have this analogy here of this beautiful garden where Christ is the vine, the Father is the gardener, and we want to be within that garden. And the way we're within that garden as a branch of Christ is by being connected to the true vine. If we sever ourselves from that vine, we will wither and die. So the only way that we can enjoy the presence of the Father is through our connection to Christ. And just as a branch receives all of its nourishment through the vine, so too do we receive all of our spiritual nourishment through Jesus Christ. And our only hope of staying there, of being in the Father's garden, of producing the fruits that he expects us to produce. Think of the parable of the talents that we talked about last week. How he expects us to use our time 
and our resources and our abilities to further his kingdom and to glorify him. The only way we can bring forth those fruits is by staying connected to Jesus Christ. Then we have verse 2. Verse 2 is in some ways terrifying. He says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Okay, so if we are not producing fruit, if we are that one servant that took our talent and buried it in the earth, and so we could go out and do our own thing and do whatever we want, well, <clears throat> that branch is taken away. That branch has, is no longer part of the Father's garden. But even scarier, if we are producing fruit, we are going to be purged that we may produce more fruit. Reminds me of a story perhaps you have heard it told by Elder Hugh B. Brown, uh, talking about a currant bush. Um, it's a beautiful story. Uh, it was, he, first told it, he first told it in 1943 in the Improvement Era. Improvement era. Uh, it was, which is the church's uh, magazine back then. But in 1973, it was reprinted in uh, the New Era. <clears throat> and in that story, he begins by talking about how he had, uh, when he was young, he had purchased a farm. And on that farm, he had a currant bush a bush that is designed to produce fruit. And this bush had been growing very unwieldy. And it had grown tall and it had branches, but it had little fruit because it's all of its nourishment, all of its energy was going forth to producing these big branches. And so he took this branch and so he took these excess branches that were not necessary and were taking the nutrients and he started cutting them back. And he says as he did so, uh, some of the sap was coming out, and it was almost as if he could see some tears forming on the currant bush. The currant bush was saying to him, Why would you cut me back like this? Didn't you see I was growing tall, and I was growing big, and I was becoming like the other trees in the garden? And he, talking to himself, said to the currant bush, I'm the gardener here. You're not like those other trees. Your mission is not to be tall. Your mission is not to be huge. Your mission is to produce fruit. And so that you can produce more fruit, I'm cutting you back so that you can fulfill your mission. Just trust me here. I'm the gardener. I know what I'm doing. And he talked about a situation later in his life when he was serving in the Canadian Army. <clears throat> he was up for promotion and uh, the news came that uh, his senior officer wanted to see him. And he was certain that he was going to be made a general. And so he went into the office only to find that even though he was told that he was uh, worthy and capable of the promotion in every way, but he was not going to receive it. And he, he, as, as, when his commanding officer left, he saw a message scribbled on his papers that said, this man is a Mormon. And he knew that it was because of his affiliation with the church, because of his testimony, that he would not receive the promotion that he had worked his entire career for. And he was bitter, and he was angry, and he went back to his barracks. He said he threw his hat on his bed, and he got on his knees and said, God, how could you do this to me? I was growing, and I was going great places. 
And then he heard the voice inside his head. God talking to him through his own voice from many years ago, saying, I am the gardener here. You're not meant to be like those other bushes. You're not meant to be like those other men. I have a plan for you. And of course, it was a great plan for Elder Brown as he later became one of, one of our apostles. And he talked about how had that promotion that he had expected and that he was wanting for, had that happened, <clears throat> who knows how his life would have been different. But it is very, it is most likely that he wouldn't have received the blessings that he later received. Okay, we're in, still in chapter 15 now. In verse 12, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. So again, he repeats the commandment that he gave in chapter 13, that he called a new commandment. Here's the second time that he's telling us, love one another as I love you. 13 and 14, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Okay, all of a sudden this commandment to love one another this is getting real now. Remember, verse 12, he commands us that we love one another. And then in the very next verse, he says, true love is laying down your life. So if we are to love one another, we're to lay down our life? Usually we read that in the context of the Savior. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But if we read that, but if we remember if we remember that that directly follows verse 12 in which he tells us to love one another as he loves us, it seems like this is a commandment for each of us to lay down our lives for our friends, to lay down our lives for each other. Now, I don't for a minute think that this means that the Savior expects us all to, to end our mortality on behalf of our friends, to literally die on behalf of those that we love. But I do think this means that if we are to love one another, that we are to be willing to give up our lives, to give up this, the, the things of this world, all of the things that we work our whole lives to build, our jobs, our houses, our cars, all of these things that are part of our lives, that are part of this world, we need to be willing to give those up for our friends. And of course, our greatest friend is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are commanded to love others that love him. So we should be willing to give up everything that we have for Christ, to everything that we have for each other, in order to advance Christ's work, in order to advance his kingdom, in order to advance his church. And in doing so, we, of course, advance ourselves and draw closer to Christ. Ye are my friends, verse 14, if you do whatsoever I command you. So we are not Christ's servants. We are his friends. As long as we keep his commandments. Verse 17, a third time, these things I command you that ye love one another. Again, each time he tells us to love one another, he does so by a commandment. He's explicit in this. I am commanding you. Love is not easy. 
Love is something that he has to command us to do. Recall uh, Mormon's teachings in the seventh chapter of Moroni, where he teaches us that we should pray with all the energy of our heart that we will be filled with charity, with this love. Love is not easy. It's something that we have to work for. So if we are to fulfill Christ's commandments, if we are to keep the commandment that we love one another, and this is a commandment that he's already given us three times, that we love one another, we need to work at it. We need to pray for it. Because it is not something that comes easily, or that necessarily comes naturally. Later in this chapter, Christ tells us then that Don't be expected that if you love me, the world will not love you back. Again, he's setting up this dichotomy here between him on one hand and the world on the other hand. Seems he's telling us, you have a choice to make. Who do you love? Do we love Christ and we will keep his commandments? Because if we do that, we are forsaking the world as we're commanded to do. And Christ will love us, but don't expect the world to love us back if we give our lives for Christ. But that is the commandment that we are to do. Let's jump to chapter 16, and we'll go through this rather quickly. Verses 13 through 15. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, so we're talking the Holy Ghost again here, is come, he will guide you in all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he, sh- uh, he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, so the Holy Ghost glorifies Christ, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and show it unto you. So again, it's setting up this this connection here between God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost shows us Christ. Christ takes us back to the Father. All three members of the Godhead working together as one, leading us back to God. And so it's important to our notion of the Godhead, as I understand these chapters in John, is essential to our understanding of what atonement means. We have three members of the Godhead working together at one. And of course, that doesn't mean that they are one in body. We know that they're three separate beings. But in order for them to accomplish their singular purpose, which is helping us to return to God the Father, they have to work together to do so. And just as we are to become one in Christ, through the Holy Ghost, leading us back to God the Father. That does not mean that we are to give up our physical bodies. But rather, it's a beautiful teaching of the atonement. And it's more than that. It's how the atonement actually works. We become one with Christ as led by the Holy Ghost. It says here, he's our guide. Think of him like a tour guide. He takes us by the hand and tells us, this is how you get back to Christ. Do what I tell you to do, he says. Do what the Holy Ghost tells you to do, and you will be with me. And because I am with the Father, you too will be with the Father. 
So it's very essential to understand that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost are not one in being. Just as we, with Christ, are not one in being. We do not give up our, we do not give up our own unique being as we become one with Christ. We give up our lives. We give up our will. We give up our desires to become him, but we don't give up our own individual being. Rather, the atonement, as we become one with Christ and leads us back to God, means we become in one in purpose with Christ, just as the three members of the Godhead are one in purpose. So to misunderstand the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is to completely misunderstand the atonement itself. Because just as those three become one, we are to join them as a fourth. We are to become one with them. Again, that doesn't mean we give up our body or that we do not exist as a separate being. But it means we become one with them through the at-one-ment, through the atonement. Verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. Again, this idea of peace being comfort with ourselves, no longer struggling against ourselves. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So it's a heads up here, it's a warning. In this life you are going to have struggles and challenges. But if you trust in me, I have overcome the world. And if you're together with me, you will too. And then we end in chapter 17, known as the Great Intercessory Prayer, also known as the High Priestly Prayer. Now, as we think of a high priest, we think back to the ordinances that were performed under the law of Moses. The high priest represented God, sorry, the high priest represented the people to God. The high priest went on behalf of the people and mediated with God, offering sacrifices, pleading with God to accept this people. That was the role of the high priest. And here we have Christ doing the same thing. In verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I want to make one small tweak to this verse. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, through Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The way we know God the Father, the way that we receive life eternal, the way that we become one with God, is through Jesus Christ, who he sent. And that's the reason that he sent him. He sent him to make it possible for us to return to God the Father. Verses 10 and 11. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. So again, we go back to this important commandment that we love one another. And why do we need to love one another? So that we can be one. 
And why do we need to be one? Because it's a similitude of the way that God the Father and Jesus Christ are one. So just as they are one in purpose, we, with other disciples of Jesus Christ, need to also be one in purpose. And that is the main reason why three times Christ has commanded us to love one another, even as he loves us. Because the only way that we can prepare ourselves to return to the Father through Jesus Christ is becoming one with each other. We often think about our relationship with Christ as being most important, and it is. But our relationship with each other, with other disciples of Christ, is also critical. In other words, if we can't get along with other disciples of Christ, how are we going to enjoy the Father's presence where others disciple, where other disciples of Christ are? If we can't love one another, if we can't be one with each other, with other disciples of Christ, how could we possibly be one with Christ? How could we become one with God the Father? So we need to work hard to love each other and to become one with each other, just as Christ and the Father are one. <clears throat> and then in verses 21 through 23, that they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, and thou hast loved me. So these verses tie it all together. We are to become one. And as we, a church, a, the body of Christ, as it is often <clears throat> called in the New Testament, or another analogy that he often uses is, we are the bride, and he is the bridegroom. This beautiful church that he has established all followers of Jesus Christ coming together as one. And as our bridegroom comes to take us back to the Father, as we are part of that body, as we are a part of that bride that is his, we go back to the Father with him. In the parable of the ten virgins, you recall that they were waiting for <clears throat> the wedding party. Now, uh, the, and the bridegroom was, was, was coming and they were waiting for him. <clears throat> and what was the bridegroom doing? The tradition at the time, and it's carried out in many other cultures. In fact, my wife being from China, we had a wedding reception in China. And we acted this out as well. It, didn't, it was a little bit different because my, my house was back in the U.S. And so we couldn't quite do it in full. But the idea is this. The groom goes from his house and he progresses in a party to pick up his bride. And then he picks her up. And in China, you actually literally pick her up. I, there was a point where I carried my wife out of her parents' home. But the groom picks up the bride and takes it back to his house. 
and she is no longer a part of her previous house. She has left that house behind. That is in her past because she is now with her husband. She is now with the bridegroom and that old past, that's history. She is now with him in a new house to enjoy all of the blessings and all of the privileges that are his. And that is the analogy that we have with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we are to become one with his church. We are to become a part of his church. We are to become baptized into that church so that when he comes and picks up the bride, which symbolizes the church, that we are a part of that party. And when he takes his bride back to the presence of the Father, we are a part of that. And through Jesus Christ, we too return to the Father to inherit all that he has to become forever a part of his great family. <clears throat> and so I want to end uh, our study today with some verses from the Doctrine and Covenants. We're in section 45, verses 3 through 5. And again, it's important to understand the relationships here because as, I've read, as we've studied these scriptures today, I hope it's the relationships that stick out with you. Our relationship with each other, we are supposed to be one. Our relationship with the Holy Ghost, as his job is to lead us to Jesus Christ. Our relationship with Christ we are to become one with Christ. And as we become one with Christ, because Christ is one with the Father, we too become one with the Father. And all of these relationships work together to take all of these distinct, separate beings and bring them together as one. And that is the at one man. That is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Next week we'll be studying about Gethsemane, about the trial, about the cross, and about the resurrection. Those are part of the mechanisms that, in ways that I don't understand, made the atonement possible. But the atonement itself is you and me coming together as one, and us coming together with Christ as led by the Holy Ghost, who then leads us back to the Father. DNC 45, verses 3 through 5. Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him, saying, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, and whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy Son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest, that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me, and have everlasting life. <clears throat> we don't do anything ourselves. Our only chance of returning to the Father is through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our only chance of remaining in the vineyard of the Father is through the true vine that is Jesus Christ. And in these verses, he teaches us he is our advocate. He is the one that takes us back to God. Our relationship with God, the Father, must run through Jesus Christ. So our job is to not go to the Father. Our job is not to be perfect. Our job is not to <clears throat> write our own salvation. 
our job is to come to Christ. And as we come to Christ, he leads us back to the Father. And how do we come to Christ? The Holy Ghost leads us to Christ. And a critical part of that is becoming one with each other and loving each other. So I hope that we will each strive every day to love one another, to follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost, to keep the commandments, take upon ourselves the name of Christ, just as a bride takes upon herself the name of her husband, we take upon ourselves the name of Christ. If, you've been, if you're paying attention, those are the three things that we covenant to do as we renew our baptismal covenants every week as we partake of the sacrament. And we'll be learning more about the sacrament next week. But the purpose of the sacrament, the purpose of every covenant that we make, is to bind us to Christ so that we become his. And as he returns to the Father, because we are with him, we also go back to the Father. So it's my hope that we will love one another and keep the commandments and come unto Christ through the Holy Ghost. That we, through his atonement, can become one with him, one with each other, and one with the Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.